If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're continuing our series in Regalia, the rise of the kingdom. And uh, today I have the um, probably unrealistic uh, responsibility of preaching five chapters out of 1 Samuel. So with that being said, man, let's pray. And uh, this is an experiment. I've never, except for last service, I've never preached five chapters before. So, oh boy. God, would you be with me? And uh, would you be with us as a church? Because there's so much that is in your word, which is so deep and impacting. There are things that we glean from scripture that are so helpful and so beautiful. Things which are challenging, things which we can look to for guidance and help. And so, Lord, we're gathered here as your people because we ultimately want to hear from you. So, God, would you be pleased to speak? God, would you be pleased as we gather together under your word to minister to our hearts and minds in whichever way you see fit? So, God, grant us your mercy and your grace. God, it's such a blessing to be here this morning and to sing the songs we just got done singing. God, as we behold you, there is an opportunity, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, of us being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So, God, would you be pleased to reveal yourself as you are infinitely glorious? And, God, being able to sing that song about confessing that our sins, they are many. But as much as we sin, Lord, we also know at the same time that your mercy is so much more. And apart from your grace and mercy, we couldn't do nothing we would be nothing, and so it's right and good for us to sing these songs. So God, we counted a blessing to be your children to gather together in this place, and so I pray you meet with us as we gather. And as the countless Christians around the world are gathering, be pleased to meet with them as well. And we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in China who are laboring under the heavy hand of their government and causing the shutdown of so many churches. God, would you be with our brothers and sisters? Let them celebrate the name of Jesus today in whichever way they can. And God, be with those families and those folks who are suffering because of the tsunami in Indonesia and the earthquake and also those in the flooding in the south. God, would you raise up your church in those areas to be radically generous and to meet the physical needs of those who are suffering. And in so doing, God, would you bring yourself glory and would you minister to the needs of those who are hurting. And use your church mightily to accomplish it. And we'll give you the thanks for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Here's the game plan. You can't always execute the game plan as you would wish, but it's a game plan nonetheless. In chapter 11, we're going to quickly look at uh, the King Saul's coronation event. And then we're going to look in chapter 12 of how since King Saul is rising to power that Samuel as a, the former leader of Israel needs to kind of give up some of his leadership. And so his authority and influence is going to decline as the authority and influence of Saul inclines. You guys get that. Chapter 13 and 14, we're going to look at King Saul himself and we're going to see a little bit about his heart. And we're going to see how he started out so strong, but then all of a sudden he makes some bad decisions and uh, his leadership is not all that great in a couple areas and it results in, in some big, big consequences. And then we'll be introduced to a man named Jonathan and Jonathan is an, a character that the scriptures portray to us as somebody who is someone we can model our lives after. And then we get to chapter 15 and then we know at that point, you know what, enough is enough. Uh, King Saul is just not the guy. And so we're going to kind of see that. So the title of today's message is The Heart of the King because we're really going to see where he starts and then where ultimately um, he's headed. And it's going to lead us right up into next week where we get to be introduced to King David. Oh, I just gave it away. We don't even need to come. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, Larry preached last week so, um, so powerfully that the people of Israel asked and requested for a king and the, the request itself was not the sin. The, the request itself was something that God already knew and had already orchestrated and had already accounted for and planned for, but it was the manner in which they went about choosing the king. And their heart behind wanting a king and requesting a king was at the rejection of God. Rather than say, we want a king who would serve underneath the authority and rule of God, they said, we want a person, a human being who will reign in place of 
God as our king. And that is what is wrong. And so the nation of Israel chose of their own accord to do what they probably should not have done in replacing God with a lesser king when God was their king all along. And then we saw, I just thought Larry did such a great job of reminding us of the sovereignty of God. That even in our bad choices and the mistakes that we make when it comes to choosing and then the result of sin, that God can still take those things and accomplish his purposes in and through them for his glory and our good. And I don't know about you, but just knowing that God is powerful and sovereign in that kind of way that he can take my sin and my missteps and he can actually accomplish his purposes through those is so reassuring. But God has to be sovereign in order to do that. He can't be weak and impotent and basically not know what to do. And so Larry did a great job of reminding us of the sovereignty of God. And so in chapter 11, we're going to start by seeing that there's a, a moment in Israel's history where they, for the first time, are going to be confronted by an enemy. And they have a human king who's going to go out and fight their battle for them just like they wanted. So we'll see how that portrays. Now, because it's so many chapters, I'm only going to read certain sections of it and just kind of put everything together. And uh, I will do my best to make sure that it's cohesive. If you haven't read this section, please read it on your own. It's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. So here we are, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said, to, to Nabash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. And what ends up happening is this king Nahash, and his name means serpent king. And so it just reminds us of Genesis chapter 3. If you remember, there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And so the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now doing battle for the very first time with a king whose name is the serpent. And so you have this beautiful image already of like, okay, this is something God understood was going to be happening. The serpent king is coming against the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham. And what's interesting is this king besieges this city and wants to gouge out the right eye of all the people there. And they say, okay, well, we'll make a treaty with you, but give us seven days. And so they send word out to the tribes of Israel and they say, hey, this is what's happening to us. They want to gouge our eye out. And we agreed to a treaty, but we want to see if you guys will come and help because, you know, we don't like that idea. It doesn't sound very fun. So word gets out in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 to Saul. And we read this. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, remember, the people of Israel wanted a king who would fight their battles and lead them out in warfare and uh, emerge victorious. So the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul when they hear that, okay, um, here's this opportunity for uh, defending the people of God, the nation of Israel. And so Saul sends out a message to the people. And in verse 11, uh, he gets a response and the soldiers gather together in, in verse 11. The next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Now, of course, you're the first king. You got anointed as the king. Everyone loves you. You're head taller and more handsome than everyone else. Your first battle is victorious. You have every right to say, aren't I amazing? He doesn't do that, in fact. We see in Verse 13, he gives all the credit to God and says that it is the Lord who has worked salvation here. And so you're right from the beginning realizing, man, this guy, Saul, is actually a humble guy. He actually doesn't take credit for the victory. He gives credit to where it's due, the Lord. The Lord did that. God got the victory. And so the results of his leadership and the victory in this battle against the serpent king and the Ammonites is the people get together in verse 15. They gather at Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They have a coronation ceremony. 
And basically what they're doing is saying, see, we wanted a king who would go out and fight our battles for us. We wanted a human king who would represent us and emerge victorious. And look, he has done exactly as we asked, which may lead the people of Israel to say, you know, God said that whole thing about how we shouldn't really want a king and how we probably shouldn't have asked for that. But it kind of looks like a good decision, actually. The first time that we get attacked, like we emerge victorious. Maybe, I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. Like you just have to examine the fruit, and the fruit's good. So maybe we're not mistaken, God is. Huh. All right, we'll leave you with that. First Samuel chapter 12. Because Saul now has his coronation ceremony, he has emerged as the leader of Israel. That means Samuel needs to decrease. And we remind ourselves of John the Baptist and Jesus. Remember how that all worked? Uh, he must increase and I must decrease. And so Saul must increase, Samuel must decrease. And so Samuel gives his farewell address, and it's not really a farewell address that we would come to expect. We would think there would be pomp and circumstance. Everyone's just like happy and excited, tears, crying, wreaths, uh, party poppers, balloons, everything. It doesn't happen like that. In fact, what we see is Samuel puts himself and the people on trial. He says this in verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, the king. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me. I will restore it to you. And the people simply reply, you didn't do any of that stuff. And why it's significant that he asked all these questions is because of what Larry preached on last week. That the ruler of this world... Satan and the promises that this world and Satan makes to us is you'll be happy and healthy and, and you can have all of this stuff if you just serve me. But what we realize is as much as the world promises, it can never cash in on what it promises. It can't offer you the very thing. It actually can't supply you with the things it offers. And so as Larry said last week, you know what? When you look at the world, it's just nothing but taking, take and take and take and take. And so God warned the people, if you have a king and his heart turns evil, he will take from you. That's the first sin in the garden. Eve saw and she took. And so the evil kings that we see throughout the nation of Israel's history, we see they just take and take and take and take. So Samuel asked the question, God told you that the kings are going to take. Let me ask you this question. Did I ever take? Did I take anything from you? And, of course, the answer is, no, you didn't take anything from us. And so Samuel wants to remind the people, that's right, I didn't. So you've chosen instead somebody to lead you who will take your stuff, even though you had a guy leading you who didn't ever take your stuff. Good choice. And then he puts the people on trial. And we pick it up in verse, I can't even see it, 16-ish? 13. There we go. I've had contact issues all day. I'm so sorry. This is not polished. All right. Verse 13. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the Lord's hand, or the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So now he's putting the people on trial. I didn't take anything from you. You still wanted a king. Okay, God gave you a king. Now there's a condition. If you want life to go well with you from here on out, you need to follow me. You need to obey me. You need to walk with me. And if you choose to rebel against the Lord, you choose to rebel against his word, you choose to deviate from what God has revealed to you to do, both you as the people and your king are going to be wiped away. You see, there's no like third option. Like, can we sort of get punished? No, no, no. You are fully obedient or you are fully going to receive the justice of God. That's it. Only two options. So he lays that before the people, this great condition, if then. And then what he does after that is he wants to make sure that the people understand the gravity and the severity of what he's just said. And so this is harvest season. And so he, Samuel calls upon God. 
He says, God, would you send down rain and thunder and lightning in the time in which that normally doesn't happen? And when it occurs, the people seeing that, they see the lightning and thunder and the rain come down, they're going, oh, oh, I think we made a big mistake. And so they begin to tremble and they are in fear and they were like, oh, no, I don't know what to do now. Let me pick it up in verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sin this evil to ask ourselves a king. You see, what's interesting is the people become very aware of the fact that they have sinned against the Lord. They've rebelled against him. And do you see what they recognize about their sin? Because we have sinned and because we have asked what we should not have asked, because we have replaced God with a lesser thing, because we've gotten rid of God as our king and put this human being as our king, Would you pray for us, Samuel, so that we won't die? Because the necessary and right consequences for rebelling against God is death. And that's exactly what we learn in the New Testament. For the wages of sin is death. We see it right here. So the people say, okay, we recognize our sin. We recognize that the consequence for sin is death. So we don't really want to die. So can you help us? And you notice that the people ask Samuel to pray for them. Samuel, the one who was innocent from asking for a king. So they, the guilty party, recognizes the innocent party and says, would you, the innocent party, plead our case before God? And that reminds us exactly of Jesus, who is, as the New Testament calls Jesus, he is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. He is the one to whom we go when we are conscious of our sin. We have been made aware of our rebellion against God, recognizing that the consequences for sin is death, knowing that we are standing under the weightiness of God's judgment. To whom will you turn? You can't turn to your spouse. They can't save you. You can't turn to your job. It won't save you. You can't turn to your money, your 401K. You can't turn to your big house or your fast cars. You can't turn to any of that stuff. You can't even turn to your morality. The only one we can turn to is the one who is completely innocent and is outside of the situation. And the New Testament says his name is Jesus. And if we, in recognition of our sin and the impending doom of God's justice placed upon us because of sin, we will confess that sin and ask Jesus, would you plead our case? I am sinful. But could there be mercy? And so what does Samuel do? He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. I just love that. I love that because it's basically he's saying, I know you guys are scared to death that you're going to hell, and you should be, but don't be afraid. And we like that. We just wish it would stop right there. Don't be afraid. God is good. God, God won't punish you. He's, he's fine. He's okay. He's an indulgent grandfather who's like sits with his cardigan on a rocking chair, and the worst he can do is, hey, kids, get off my lawn. But that, he doesn't do much more than that. But then I love what Samuel says next. You have done all this evil. So don't be afraid, but that doesn't ignore you're guilty. You're dead guilty. (laughs) Now, why I like that is because that's so countercultural to today. Usually when somebody confesses their sin to us, we say something like this. Oh, you know what? Thank you so much for sharing that with me you know what, don't freak out. The reality is everyone makes mistakes. You're not a bad person. Everyone makes mistakes now and then, so don't beat yourself up. You know what, in the grand scheme of things, it's not like you killed anyone or anything. Come on, like, don't beat yourself up. Come on, you're all right. (laughs) And it's almost like, wait, what? Like, we're asking for this religious pep talk. I've just confessed that I have rebelled against a holy God. I know, but it's not that big a deal. It's not like you killed someone. And what I like about what Samuel does is he does the exact opposite. 
He says something like this, and I'll put it in today's terms. Oh, you know what? Thanks for sharing with me, you all. But I don't want you to freak out. You are indeed very sinful and complete wretches. You have indeed done all of this evil, and you rightly deserve death and God's punishment. Wait, what? Why should I not be afraid then if that's true? It's what he says next. I like this. Verse 20. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. In other words, you have made this grave mistake. You have sinned against the Lord. You have rebelled against a holy God. You are wretched and sinful and despicable and you deserve death. But don't be afraid. Here's what you need to do. From here on out, in light of your sin, you need to wholeheartedly obey God. I don't know about you, but that, that's kind of one of those things that, that is comforting to me in one way and then terrifying in another. Because all of us have sinned, and I know if you think you haven't sinned, you have. Knock it off. Like, let's be honest. But when we do sin, what's really interesting is, is we try to run to justification. No, 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 I did that because. Or something like that. And what Samuel does is saying, you don't have any room for justification. You, you did sin. You did it. But even though you did sin and even though you rebelled against God, if, condition, you will wholeheartedly obey God and not turn to idols, you'll be okay. And it makes me reassured like, oh, man, okay. So not all hope is lost. Okay. Like that one sin doesn't define me. Okay. So that's like good side of it. But then it's terrifying because the next thought comes in my head, maybe yours. Okay, if I wholeheartedly obey God. Yeah, I can't remember a time when I actually did that. So if that's what is required for me not to face the judgment of God, wholehearted obedience, yeah, I'm probably going to still end up facing God's judgment anyway. What am I going to do? I've never once been wholeheartedly obedient. Even when I was and I became proud of how obedient I was and I fell right back into sin. You see what's happening here? It's kind of good news, but not really. The one thing that irritates me more than anything about what's going on in modern Christian culture is that we don't take verses like this seriously. You are sinful, wretched. In our Christian subculture, we don't like to say that. Instead, we kind of minimize sin and we, we attribute the, the idea of mistake. Have you ever heard a celebrity apologize publicly for domestic violence or something like that? Sorry for my mistake. Your mistake? You beat your wife. Mistakes are when you put the red sock into the whites and when you're doing laundry. <laughs> Mistakes are when in your neighborhood laundry day is Thursday and you drag your garbage cans out on Friday. That's a mistake. Sin is rebellion against God. And when we in our Christian lingo equate mistakes with sin, we minimize sin and we also belittle the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, we have to realize this. The horror of sin is that it is an offense to the glory and majesty and worth of God. Sin, as I said a couple weeks ago, is when you look at the glory of God and you yawn. And so when we consider sin not that big a deal, it means we see God's glory not that big a deal. So the horror of sin is relative to the glory of God. And if God is not all that glorious, then sin is not all that horrible. And if God is infinitely glorious, then sin must be infinitely horrible. And we should never, ever, as Christians, equate infinite horrors with mere mistakes. 
as though the Holocaust is about the same as missing trash day in your neighborhood. Do you see what I'm talking about here? That's why I love the Bible. It just snaps us back into reality and asks ourselves the question, who the heck do you think you're kidding? You are a sinner. Whoa. I feel the weightiness of that. So what is the response? You better live in wholehearted obedience or else. Man, that's not good news. It's not good news. It is absolutely not good news. I'll give it to you, the good news, in a minute. But let's go this in verse 21. He says, don't turn away to empty things. Don't turn to idols. Those things are empty. Don't turn to sex. Don't turn to entertainment. Don't turn to your money. Don't turn to uh, prestige. Don't turn to power. Don't turn to people's approval of you. Don't turn to self-worth and all this kind of stuff. Those things are empty. They can't satisfy you. And he says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because he because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In other words, what Samuel does is he says you need to be obedient, but you need to anchor your obedience into the bedrock foundation of God's glory. See what he says? For the Lord will not forsake his people. For, be obedient. Why? Because God won't forsake his people. Okay? Because of his great namesake. When God bought you, he put his name on you, and he's not going to reject you because in so doing, he rejects himself. He's not going to do that. Okay? And it says, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It is pleasurable to God that he have a people for his own possession who bear his name. Okay. Now, this is a theme throughout Scripture, that God wants a people for his own possession to make them a kingdom and to make them priests, and he purchases them. Look at this, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, this is God speaking, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see key words there. You shall be to me a treasured possession. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Keep that in your mind. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. I won't read all of them, but we'll see this. For you are people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number that any, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When you take these things together and then you fast forward to the New Testament, what you see is amazing. That those same accolades and attributes are now applied to the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Peter says, But you, Christians, are a chosen race. Sound familiar? You are a royal priesthood. Sound familiar? You are a holy nation. Sound familiar? You are a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, all of this is to point us towards a greater kingdom. It's all pointing us towards God as the true king, reigning over a true kingdom, and we are the kingdom. And so we see it in Revelation chapter 1, where there's this depiction of the kingdom which has been purchased somehow. Let's look at it in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
When I, when I see that and you piece it together, the only way for you to escape the wrath of God is wholehearted obedience. I can't do that. Well, you better. That's not good news. But the good news comes in when we start to realize God knows that we cannot love him, serve him, and obey him with our whole heart. And so he sends somebody in our place to do what we could not do ourselves. I'll just leave it there. I'm going to come back to it. And why does God do this? He does this for his own glory. God chose for his own glory. God bestows for his own glory. God does all of this stuff for his own glory, for his own sake, for his great namesake. We see this in Isaiah 48. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the, pray, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you so that I may not cut you off. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake. If you're a parent, you know what it means when you say things twice. Don't make me say it twice. But when you do have to say it twice, you mean business. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So all of our obedience should be grounded in the fact that through Jesus' shed blood, God has purchased us and made us his very own possession. So it is by his preserving power and grace that we remain in him and our obedience is fueled by this truth that for the sake of God's glory, he has made us his own and we are his and he is ours forever. Now, because God has promised a kingdom that will last forever, we don't obey in order to get it. We obey because we've been already given it. Do you see the difference? And so wholehearted obedience is not, I'm going to earn God's favor and receive the kingdom by my behavior. Wholehearted obedience is a continued recognition of I am a sinful wretch and apart from the grace of God, I'm nothing. So God, pour your mercy and grace upon me. And Jesus, by his blood and resurrection, has purchased me and I'm yours and you are mine forever. Sealed, sanctified, secured by the blood of Christ. I'm not going anywhere and therefore I will obey you the best I know how and the best I can, knowing that I'm going to fail along the way, but your grace is sufficient for me. Okay. Let me ask you the question, what is good news? You better obey or else, or Jesus has obeyed for you. What's good news? Now we turn, unfortunately, to Saul. At first we saw in chapter 11, he leads the people into victory, has a coronation ceremony. Man, this guy, he's the real deal. And then we get to chapter 13. And the wheels come off. Chapter 14, it gets worse. Chapter 15 is the worst. Saul and Jonathan, who we don't know who Jonathan is yet, but they attack the Philistines at a place called Geba, and they're victorious. The result of that victory is that the Philistines now hate the Israelites, and they consider them a stench to their nostrils, like Brussels sprouts for me. And then all of a sudden, uh, Samuel tells Saul, look, you're going to go to battle against the Philistines, but you need to wait seven days until I get there. Don't act, just wait. Be patient. I'll be there in seven days. And so Israelites are facing the Philistines. They are 30,000 strong. The Israelites are a couple thousand. They're going, oh, oh, like I'm not good at math, but I don't think this is going to go well for us. They're outnumbered, and they don't have the same weapons. They have farming tools, and these folks have chariots and swords and spears. So they're seeing that they're outnumbered and outgunned. And Saul is told, you need to just wait there for seven days until Samuel comes. And as he's waiting for seven days, soldiers are leaving. They go, this ain't worth it, man. <laughs> I'm not getting my head chopped off for this. This is not even, like, I have a, you know, I have a, a, a what are those? I have something. I have a hoe. And uh, these guys have chariots and stuff. This is not going to go well. So they all start leaving. So Saul gets freaked out. He starts seeing his army leaving, and he's thinking, dude, if I don't do something, we're going to get annihilated. So he decides to offer the sacrifice and not wait for Samuel. You know how that's going to work out. 
As soon as he's done, he looks up, and here comes Samuel, Samuel over the horizon, and he sees the smoke going up, and Samuel knows instantly, this fool. And look at this. Samuel says in verse 13 of chapter 13, or excuse me, uh, he says in verse 11, what have you done? Verse 12, Saul replies, now the Philistines uh, will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. That's a key phrase. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. In other words, I disobeyed God, but I forced myself to do it. I really didn't want to, but I sinned because I had to. And so... Samuel replies, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, Saul disobeyed God. But he forced himself to do it. He had no choice. That doesn't matter. Sin is sin. And so now the kingdom is going to be ripped from Saul. Because remember the warning in chapter 12. If you and your king obey, it's going to go great. If you and your king disobey, mm -mm, it's not going to go great. It didn't go great. Or they disobeyed, so now it's going to, not going to go great. And so the question is, well, who is this mysterious man after God's own heart? Who might that be? And as studious readers, we would be reading this and we're thinking to ourselves, huh, I wonder who that's going to be. And then we turn to chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul. <gasps> See, Saul the king is not going to be king anymore and somebody else will be. And in normal kind of how things work, when the king goes, his son takes over. So now we have Jonathan, the son of Saul. It might be him. Maybe he's the guy after God's own heart. So he says to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now we jump down to verse 6 and 7, and we see a little bit about who Jonathan is. Could he be the man after God's own heart? Jonathan said to the armor bearer who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the Philistines. It may be, look at this phrase, what a beautiful sentence. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You want to talk about faith. That's Jonathan saying, God is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God can save Israel with two people or 200,000. You see, God is not limited by his resources because at God's disposal is all resources. God is sovereign and powerful. He can do whatever he wants. And so Jonathan says, maybe God will use us to save Israel. Verse 7, his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your Maybe it's Jonathan who's the guy after God's own heart. I mean, he trusts God's sovereignty. He trusts God's providence. And he says, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Maybe it's Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who will lead Israel. Jonathan is the one who will redeem and save Israel. It's Jonathan who will be the man after God's own heart. And then all of a sudden, Jonathan attacks the Philistines, and he... he uh, takes down about 20 of the soldiers, and then the whole Philistine army is thrown into confusion. They don't know what happened. It's just two guys against 20, and people start scattering. They start fighting each other, and then the, the Israelites, they start popping out of their caves and out of their holes that they were hiding in. They're like, what's going on? And, and finally, they realize the Philistines are confused. Let's get them. And so the whole army goes and attacks the Philistines, and they conquer the Philistines, and they get them on the run, and they're pursuing them day and night. And uh, Saul, along the way, wants total victory. So he looks at his army and says, you guys will not eat until I have total victory over the Philistines. You better not touch anything. And so the soldiers continue to fight until they are weary, and they are worn out. But remember, Jonathan didn't, wasn't with his dad and didn't hear what his dad said about not eating. So Jonathan goes into the forest and he sees some honey. He dips his 
staff into the honey, he eats it, and then his eyes brighten, and he has energy. And he looks around at the other soldiers who are completely worn out and realizes they don't have energy. And he realizes, my dad just made a big mistake in making these guys not eat. They don't have any energy. And so he wants to wipe out the Philistines. He wants to make this final victory, this final thrust. And so he asks God, God, should we do this? Should we do it? And God doesn't answer. And so he realizes one of the reasons why God doesn't answer is somebody's living in sin. So he took, Saul takes himself and his son and puts the people on one end and himself on the other, asks God, who is it? And God reveals that it's Jonathan and, and Saul. And then they cast lots, like roll dice, and they say, who is it, me or him? And Jonathan was taken. And so Saul looks at Jonathan and says, what have you done? Verse 43, he says, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And you're thinking, no. I thought he was the man after God's own heart. He's going to die? Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? He who has worked this great salvation in Israel, far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Do you see that? The innocent party ransoms the guilty party. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? It reminds us so much of Jesus and the precious truth that we read in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem or ransom us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. And look at this other little theme that we've been talking about, to be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We don't know how the people ransomed Jonathan, but we do know how Jesus has ransomed us. God sent forth his one and only son, born of the Virgin Mary. And from that statement, we always run to the cross, who died on the cross. And I would say, awesome. Except for from the time he was born to the time he died, he did stuff. And what he did was he lived in what the theologians call active obedience, which means every moment of every day, Jesus did everything that was ever required and commanded by God. So he's completely innocent. And yet he ransomed us by giving himself the innocent for the guilty and took upon himself the penalty for sins by hanging naked, full of shame on a cross. And thereby his bloodshed makes purification for sins, dead and buried, but then popped up. He's still alive, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering evil. And when he does that, he now offers by faith as the instrument, faith, that if you believe that his active obedience and his passive obedience and dying on the cross and rising from the dead, that that is for you, and you believe that, that you will be ransomed from death and you will be ransomed from the punishment and justice of God like Jonathan was ransomed by the people. The innocent will purchase the guilty. And we see Jesus in this, do we not? Because all of us are guilty, all of us have sinned, and yet God offers this, yes, but I sent my son Jesus to live in your place and to die in your place, and he's risen to give you a place. So brothers and sisters, we see Jesus there. Oh, that's good. What's my time? Mm. Chapter 15 in five minutes. If we thought that was bad, he made a, a bad sacrifice. He made a stupid vow. Now we see the, the heart of Saul is just, man, this guy's just messing up. Now we see something else. 
He's commanded directly by God to accomplish a mission. We see this in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. This reveals even more the heart of the king. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You read a text like that, and that's hard to read. In fact, I know of people who have completely abandoned faith in God because of this text. Because they ask themselves the question, how can a good God command genocide? And I would say, in response to that, God doesn't command genocide. But this is evidence of God's justice. How does that fit together? I'm glad you asked. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, we see that Amalek and the Amalekites are the aggressors in their confrontation and warfare with Israel. In verse 8, it says, Then Amalek, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And then from verses 9 to 12 is the famous story of when Joshua and the Amalekites fight each other, and then Moses' hands are, are raised, and when they're raised high, they're winning, but when they drop low, they start losing. And so they have two guys, Aaron and Hur, who are holding up his arms, and like, ah, and Moses, ah, and then they start winning. Well, all of that happens. Very famous story. If you haven't read it, read it. It's famous. Verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now why? It's a big deal. There's lots of wars. We see it in Deuteronomy 25. Verse 16, God says, for all who do such things... All who act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord your God. In other words, anyone who mistreats the poor, that's what chapter 25 of Deuteronomy is all about, mistreats the poor, mistreats the marginalized, and treats unfairly those who are weak. They are an abomination to the Lord. You mistreat the vulnerable, you are an abomination to the Lord. That's a theme throughout Scripture. Verse 17. And here's where God says, for example, here's an example of mistreating the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail? That's a metaphor. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord gives you rest from all your enemies... You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And we have to stop and think about who was in the back as the million or so people came out of Egypt. It was the women, the children, the sick, the infirmed, the handicapped, the lame, the blind, the deaf. And how did Amalek attack the Israelites? By getting those people first. He came and he slaughtered the poor and the weak, the vulnerable, the disabled, the children. And God says, that behavior is despicable to me. That's an abomination. And that man and his people are going to get justice. And so God commands that Israel wipe out the Amalekites as the just action for how they treated Israel and did not fear the Lord. So this is not genocide. God did not command it because they are Amalekites. God commanded this because they were wretched sinners. And we don't have enough time to go through it. But what ends up happening is Samuel, excuse me, Saul sees Samuel come and he says in verse 13, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've committed everything to slaughter I've killed everything just like God said, all the ox, all the sheep, all the goats, everything. So Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? 
You said you were fully obedient? Then what are all these animals doing here? And it goes on, Saul begins to blame the people. No, they, they brought them. I, I did what I was supposed to do, but they, they did it. And we have to realize partial obedience is full disobedience. Have to realize that. Partial obedience is full disobedience. That's why when you don't obey God with the whole heart like you ought to, that's why there is wrath and consequences for sin. So Saul seeks to justify himself. And then ultimately in verse 22 and 23, we are told that God is not pleased with sacrifice as much as he is pleased with perfect obedience. And you and I are the kind of people that we like to justify our disobedience by exalting our other obedience. We're the kind of people that say, I know that I should forgive my wife, but at least I'm reading my Bible a lot. I know that I should disciple my children in the way of the Lord, but they like me better when I let them watch TV without restrictions. I, I know... I know that I need to go to church. I know I need to gather with God's people, not being disobedient that way. But I do pray, and I have a devotional. Do you see, do you see that? And so we elevate our obedience and ignore our disobedience, but we must realize partial obedience is full disobedience. So, brothers and sisters, we don't want to be like Saul. We need a true king. We need a king who will be fully obedient. We need a king who will lead us well and wisely. We need a king who will please God on our behalf. We need a king who will fight our battles. We need a king who will be everything we need and more. And brothers and sisters, we have a king and his name is Jesus. Fully obedient in every way. He fights our battles. He will not forsake us. He will not leave us. He has bestowed his love upon us. He has redeemed us, reconciled us, ransomed us by his own blood, risen to the right hand of the Father, offering us life should we have faith that all that he did is sufficient. I'm done. <laughs> so, Father, as we leave here, I pray that you would let us leave with the good news written upon our hearts. And I pray if there's any here who feel that burden of sin and want to be free of it, that they would come into the light and that they would ask for forgiveness and seek your grace and you would be pleased to give it and place it upon them and purchase them. For your blood is sufficient. Your resurrection is the evidence. And so I pray for our church, Lord. Do in us and through us whatever you will, but make us the kind of people you want us to be for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.